Hello, everyone. This is Premier Chess CEO, National Master Evan Rabin. I'm very excited to be here on episode 252 of the Premier Chess podcast, where every week we interview great chess professionals, business coaches, attorneys, many others who have found their passion in whatever it is that they do. Uh, this week, we have uh, a long-term acquaintance, Steve Fropp, who I've known for um Many years uh, in and around the chess world, uh, although I did get really a chance to uh, know him recently and look forward to getting him, getting to know him more uh, on the podcast. Uh, in addition to being a national expert uh, in chess, uh, he's also uh, served for many years as an executive coach, and he also actually uh, recently wrote a book uh, that we'll talk about. Uh, in a little bit. Uh, but uh, yeah, first, uh, can you just tell us a little bit more about uh, your background and how, how you got started in, in chess uh, in the beginning? Well, my chess career goes back, believe it or not, uh, 50 years. My very first tournament ever was a week after Bobby Fischer beat Boris Spassky. For many listeners, wow. that's long <laughs> before they were born. Uh, but that you know, it was the Fisher fever at the time in the United States. The Cold War was alive and well. So it was seen as a proxy, even by non-chess players, as the battle of the superpowers, as you all know. And so I, I played for my first time then. I quickly became uh, an expert within about seven years. That's what's called the Soltis curve. You're going to reach your ultimate level roughly in about eight years. And that's pretty much what happened to me by, you know, the, the late 70s, I reached that expert level, then ultimately became a lifetime 2100 player, you know, with hundreds of games over 2100. Now I'm down again, you know, with age, we all we can't maintain that peak rating. But yeah, my career goes back 50 years. And that's how I got started in chess. That's amazing. So it's definitely something we've heard a lot about uh, on the podcast before. We've had, you know, people like Bruce Pandolfini. Uh, you know, who was actually very integral, by the way. Um, in fact, you, you might even remember he was uh, giving some of the commentary with Shelby Lyman uh, at yes. the time. But yes. uh, were, were you listening to that by any, by any chance? Do, do, do you remember I, that well? I didn't remember Bruce being involved. I know he was depicted in the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer by Ben Kingsley, and that was an amazing movie. Yep. But I did watch the Shelby Lyman broadcast for sure. Got it. Got it. Yeah, well, he, he definitely was. And uh, in addition to being a dear friend and mentor of mine, uh, actually, uh, you know, one thing I talked about with Bruce uh, when he was on uh, the podcast uh, quite a while ago now, uh, it's just it's actually a little crazy to, to me. It was like a revelation that I had while he was on the episode. You know, there literally there were three huge chess booms in the last 40 years. You know, the Fisher's Baskey match, uh, searching for Bobby Fisher. Uh, and then Queen's Gambit. And Bruce actually had like a very integral role in all three of them. That's exactly right. <laughs> Which I was like, oh my God, Bruce, like you've done so much more for Jeff than I ever like realized. <laughs> I mean, and I he always knew he's done a lot, but you know, it, until then I was like just blown away. <laughs> yes, he was the main coach for uh, Fabi Caruana uh, back in the yep. years when Fabi was, uh, you know, living in Brooklyn. I remember that well. Yep, yep, yeah, and I, and I first met Fabiano when he was eight, uh, you know, li living in New York, um, you know, playing him in the Friday Night Methods uh, at the Marshall. But um, anyway, um, so, so tell me a, a little bit more back then, you know, how you, you know, actually, you know, one thing I always say, right, there's 
one thing to be a little bit influenced, play for a little bit, right? I already know a lot of people who, you know, during the pandemic, you know, watched a couple Twitch streams. They were interested in chess. And guess what? That day is done. You know, I was just talking to a parent yesterday. You know, her, her, her kid started following streams during the pandemic. I actually taught him for a little while. You know, we were catching up. And, oh, look, it's not like he's not doing chess at all, but he's, he's not as excited as he was even a few months ago. So, um, what, what, what really, you know, got you, you know, full on started playing tournaments? Uh, you know, did you work with coaches? Did you learn yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit more. I've never worked with a coach. I've never played a single game online, believe it or not. I mean, for people that have been around chess as long as I have, that's almost even, even, to, even, even today, you've never played a game online, never played a game online ever. Uh, I've always wow. been <laughs> hard to believe. I know it's impossible. I have friends my age that have played 20,000 games online. Right. Uh, wow. and so in fact, my book, uh, which, which we'll talk about a little bit later, defending under pressure is really, of course, the techniques and the methods in there really only apply to classical time controls where you have adequate time. This is not hmm. going to be very helpful, or at least a whole lot for like playing blitz better, for example. Uh, I've always been attracted to classical chess, slower time controls. I think you have a chance to go a little bit deeper and create more interesting things. So you not only get, the, hopefully, the satisfaction of potentially winning and playing well, uh, but the aesthetics of being able to go deeper with that extra time. So the aesthetic dimension in the artistic side of chess is very important to me. And that's what attracted to me to chess in the first place. The parts of your brain that you use, which is a combination of the analytical and the intuitive, as we all know. Uh, so I got hooked on it fairly early for that reason. Never had any coaches. I had the usual books that my generation had, Fred Reinfeld, Irving Chernev, not the greatest stuff, nothing online at that point in time. There was no internet. Uh, and so kind of you know, learn on your own, mostly that generation. So, you know, the fact that I got to expert fairly quickly. And by the way, I played in my very first tournament when I was 19 years old. So I totally missed the youth window. Uh, hmm. So that didn't help me. And then I reached a peak of 2192, kind of all do it yourself. So maybe I could have been a little bit better had I started uh, 15 years earlier. <laughs> Who knows? So, you know, the, the first thing I, I wanted to, you know, ask you from, from that, which, you know, I find very interesting. Um, well, I definitely want to talk about, you know, kind of why you can play online, you know, at least like once, you know, it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, like I've heard from, you know, adults, I, I never tried, you know, alcohol once in my life. Right. You know, look, I understand you don't drink, but like, I, it, to me, it's like a little bit bizarre that you've never tried an alcoholic beverage and you're, you know, in your 30s or 40s or above that, you know, and, and I have heard that, you know, from very few people, you know, in, in my life, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, but uh, yeah, so, so so I guess, you know, to, to, to start out, um, you know, look, it's not easy with, with without a coach, you know, without accountability, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to get better. Um, I personally haven't had a coach in, you know, a couple of years, but, you know, I've learned a lot, uh, obviously over the years, most recently with Grandmaster Landon Dudasin. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, a lot of it is, is, he's definitely taught me a lot, but it's also, you know, very much accountability. So, um, what, uh, you know, what, what, what did you use the most to, uh, you know, become a, you know, strong expert, you know, almost master? 
Well, I'm very disciplined to begin with, so um, I don't need uh, external help to be motivated and do the hard work. So that's a part of it. Plus, I've always, uh, most of my adult life, I've had full-time jobs, I, you know, I have a family. Uh, so I've never been able to devote huge amounts of time to this. But when I have devoted the time, it's been pretty intense, disciplined practice. So I know what I need to do. I'm an executive coach in my day job, so I understand you know, self-motivation and discipline and doing the work and all that. So I bring a lot of that as intrinsic traits, which helped me a lot uh, to, to be able to re go as far as I did with such, you know, limited resources and time. Uh, and plus, I'm a, a, quite a positional player by style. I've never been attracted to tactics. When I think of blitz games, so much of it is just so quick and, and very tactical in nature. And it's done for fun, I guess you could say. But I've always been a more serious player. I, I appreciate the aesthetic and artistic side, and you need time to create those kinds of games, especially the slow positional maneuvering. So very young, I was very attracted to Ulf Anderson, you know, he, who once reached number four in the world uh, on the FIDE list back in the 70s, and Tigran Petrosian, you know, from Armenia, uh, those styles of play, that's not the way you play in blitz or, or rapid time controls. So for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, style, positional, the self-discipline, the desire to be more creative and not just purely the results in what I'm looking for. And that's one of the reasons to answer your question why I've never played online uh, and mm -hmm. what motivated me and kept me going uh, playing in those classical time control games. I, I played no rapid and blitz events. You could check out on the USCF website. You'll see I have uh, no, no blitz rating whatsoever. So that's a little background on the why, you know, behind that. Yeah. And, you know, I do find that, again, very fascinating. And, you know, look, I, I do definitely know people who are, you know, more or less into online chess and, you know, definitely, you know, different ages, you know, do, do it, do it more. And, I mean, honestly, I'm kind of embarrassed how much chess I've, I've played online. You know, ICC, for instance, used to, uh, you know, actually measure their percentage of, of, of life on, yes. <laughs> on, on ICC, you know, and I think at one point I was like, you know, 3% or something like that. I was like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> you know, this is nuts, <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, and then, on, you know, on, on lead chess, I think it, uh, you know, Margaret, too, I'm actually like taking a quick look at it now, uh, you know, as, as I'm talking to you. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I forget exactly where it says it, but um, you know, talks about like how much time you, you spent playing, you know, which for me is just you know a little crazy, you know, <laughs> to, to 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 think about, um, and, and almost embarrassing, you know, quite quite frankly, you know, so uh, it could definitely get uh, you know quite addicting, um, you know, but. <laughs> You know, so. Um, well, as a psychologist, so yeah, I, mean, I can tell you that chess is amazingly addicting. I mean, almost like a drug for many people. Uh, we all know players like that. They literally need their fix, which means playing as much chess as they can, whether it's online or, you know, uh, in live tournaments. So there's a huge addictive component uh, to chess. Could you talk a little bit more about that and just, you know, how you know, the addictiveness of chess could be a little bit of a danger, 
to uh, to certain people. <laughs> well, yeah, lucky. Luckily, it's not as much of a danger as gambling, where you could, you know, you know, sell your future because uh, you, you're, you have gambling debts in Vegas or online gambling or whatever. So that's the good news. But it's equally addictive compared to a lot of other things too, because you could, you know, have one bad game, but you, there's a next game right around the corner. So it's like that. I'm going to spin that roulette wheel again. Get to do it mm. again. Get a fresh start, and you. You're on a variable reinforcement schedule to use a, a Skinnerian term, meaning that you're going to get reinforced, whether it's live tournaments or, or online tournaments or blitz or whatever. You have a bad game, then you have your masterpiece, and now you're hooked and addicted more, and you want more of those masterpieces. It's like taking the ultimate drug, like crack cocaine, and it feels so <laughs> wonderful. You want to replicate the experience. So psychologically and emotionally, chess has a lot of the qualities of drug addiction, gambling addiction, uh, alcohol addiction, uh, and many other types of addictions that I won't mention. But you, you know what I'm what I'm referring to. Of course, of course, and you know that 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 is you know definitely you know uh, I mean look it 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 it's it's better than other things. You know, yes. one one of our podcast guests. Uh, actually, Orrin Hudson, uh, who actually also is uh, more, more of a life coach than an executive coach. But, um, you know, we actually hung out at the World Championship in, in, in Dubai. Um, but, you know, he, he also does a lot of work going to schools and, you know, talking about chess as a way to learn life skills. And, yeah, all the time, you know, he, he says, uh, I'm forgetting right now one of his taglines. But, you know, basically it says, you know, push pawns, not... Uh, you know, drugs, you know, and, and, and things like that. So um, there, there's definitely work things you could be doing. But, you know, that, that said, look, I know a lot of chess players that, uh, you know, frankly, <laughs> you know, do, do not, uh, you know, no business skills. They don't know how to, uh, you know, take, <laughs> you know, right. th- th- things like that. You know, um, you know, frankly, mentioned oh man but you know the other day i was talking to a strong uh international master and you know frankly i was giving him what i thought was pretty basic basic dating advice <laughs> you know yet he uh you know was uh is a lot better than me uh in jest but uh yeah. in other areas of life uh you know maybe not as much <laughs> so um so you, you've been uh in organizational uh you know behavior uh and effectiveness uh for many years um, at Brandeis, I actually had the privilege of taking an organizational behavior class, which uh, I liked quite a bit. Yeah. Um, Can you tell listeners that might not know, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you could talk about this for several hours, but, uh, you know, what, what what is the organizational development work that you do in a, in a nutshell? Well, I mean, there's various aspects to it. I mean, we all are somewhat specialized. And, and of course, every case is, is, is different, uh, of course. But um, and, and you just so people know you've worked with a large variety of very big firms, you know, from Prudential uh, to ADP, uh, yep. to Automated Group, uh, I'm yep. sure many other companies those are on your LinkedIn at the moment. But um, yeah, can, can you tell us a, a little bit more? at least my approach to it, uh, where I put the most focus over the years, not so much on the internal roles at those three different Fortune 500 companies where I was a VP, but when I've been on the outside as a coach and consultant, most of my work has been done with 
the top team of the company. So the CEO and his or her direct reports. Typically, those senior teams like to go offsite. We call them executive retreats or the offsite meeting. And they're usually two or three days away from the day to day. And they have an opportunity to do, you know, strategic planning and also some team building. So enhancing the team dynamics of how they work together. So blending those two topics of strategic planning with the team dynamics, particularly if there's several new members of that leadership team, maybe they've come from the outside, there's been retirements or whatever, or departures. And so now even one person can change the whole dynamic of that senior leadership team. So my specialty was helping that senior team work well together uh, with those different strong personalities in the room so that they could really focus in a coherent way on their strategic objectives and have a, a good probability of being able to execute on those objectives. So it's the intersection of the strategic, strategic planning with the team dynamics. So we'd be offsite for several days. We'd use some team building exercise, some strategic planning uh, uh, approaches during that three-day offsite. And then there'd be a clear action plan walking out of that three-day meeting. But an action plan, not only on the strategic side, obviously, but on their commitments to each other on aspects of the team dynamics where they need to get better. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what I do uh, with senior teams of companies. Interesting. And one thing that, you know, I remember learning in, in college actually from this Professor Detlev Thudero, who, by the way, was uh, a VP of HR at Clear Systems and um, DEC, D Digital Equipment Corporation, uh, before I think, uh, if I remember correctly, HP uh, took it over. Um, you know, many other organizations was, uh, you know, it gets lonely at the top. You know, yes. people don't know what to uh, to do. Um, and, and that, by the way, is, you know, more small, medium businesses, you know, like us as well. You know, I, I have 50 instructors on our team, you know, all over the country. Um, you know, we have a part-time CFO. Uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, there's a lot of times where I'm, you know, don't know what to do, you know? So, uh, you know, having a coach is important, but um, also having, a, you know, a good referral uh, system and, you know, other uh, entrepreneurs that, uh, you know, to work with. Uh, you know, the bounce ideas off of, uh, you know, is, is very important. So, um, you know, and, and I, you know, thankfully do have a lot of entrepreneurs friends that, uh, you know, I bounce yes. ideas with, uh, you know, almost every day, right. uh, you know, including my, my good friend, Michael Doyce, who's you know, been on the podcast twice. He's, uh, you know, actually started a kid basketball company, but um, yeah, we talk, I would say almost every day uh, about one problem or another, you know, that, that, that we're facing. Um, and, and to exchange ideas is, is, is great. So uh, how, how would you say, you know, being a chess player, uh, you know, has helped you in, in your career uh, as an executive coach? Well, a lot of my one-on-one -on -one executive coaching work focuses on what, on what I call emotional self-management. You could be the most brilliant executive with the knowledge and the experience and the relationships, but if you can't emotionally self-manage, you're going to run into lots of different challenges uh, and actually derail in some situations. So things like emotional triggers, what are our hot buttons? Uh, do we have effective ways to hit that emotional reset button when we're thrown off balance, either by a difficult personality or some bad news that we've received, or one of our projects is failing? How do we deal with adversity? You know what I'm talking about when it comes to chess. 
you know, we could have a horrible position on the board and almost feel like you want to run out of the room or resign. And sometimes <laughs> if we could really stay in there and hang in there, we could survive. That happened to me just a week ago in a tournament where I was dead lost, but I hung in there and he was short on time. And sure enough, I was able to save the game by a really interesting stalemate uh, that hmm. is totally unexpected. Uh, and so you got to keep our head about it. So how do we emotionally self-manage? Or when we get off track emotionally, are there quick ways to get back on track? So a lot of my coaching focuses on that. And I, I can tell you all the way up to the CEO level, you know, there's self-management challenges. Uh, just because you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company doesn't mean you're perfect in every way as an executive. I mean, some of them have some intense emotional management issues and Sometimes they get away with a lot of it because they're the top dog and you can get away with a lot more when you're the most powerful person. But, you know, eventually that's not going to work in your favor. So I've actually worked with a couple of CEOs one on one in recent years where the board wanted them to work with an executive coach because, frankly, they were getting near the edge of uh, uh, moving them out uh, because of the bad mm -hmm. behavior, not because of their technical brilliance. Uh, so, yeah, emotional self-management is absolutely huge in a world, I think, of chess and executives. So, yeah, and, and that, you know, actually relates to um, a lot of the advice that I got from Grandmaster Dawson, um, where I actually, in the beginning, completely rejected it. And I was, like, pretty angry uh, about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and basically, we would go over a lot of my games. I would blunder in a certain situation, you know, and I'd say, oh, master, let's move on. You know, it's like I, I blundered here. Not much to look at. You know, I know what I did. He was like, no, why did you blunder? You know, and I would always say, like, what do you mean? I, I wasn't thinking. I, I messed up. Let's move on. He's like, no, why did you blunder? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and honestly, it was like, to me, it was just annoying. <laughs> you know, I was a high school student. I was not listening. You know, and I, I was like just very frustrated, but no, he would actually dig into it. And literally nine times out of ten, I either misevaluated the position. I was distracted about a test coming up. You know, I was distracted about a relationship thing. <laughs> you know, I, I was not in the mindset. You know, I played two tournaments two days in a row without any rest in between or going over any of my games. You know, I had no business even playing the tournament. Right. Or, or whatever it was, there, there was always something <laughs> very rarely was it just, oh, you know, I, I can't think of why I made this one, uh, you know, here um, and, and dealing with tournament pressure, too, is, is, is very important. Um, honestly, it's like one of my pet peeves with students all the time now, mostly adult beginners, by the way, high school students who are you know, beginners. They're like, oh, how good am I in, in, in chess? You know, I'm 1600 on chess.com. Look, I have no idea. Go play it over the board tournament, and we'll see. We'll go over your games. We'll, you know, get an idea. But honestly, until then, look, I could give some kind of guess, but also, yeah, dealing with, for instance, a last round situation where, you know, winning is first place and drawing or losing is practically nothing. Guess what? There's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, dealing with playing lower rated players, dealing with high rated players. Uh, you know, you, you name it, right? I mean, there, there's just a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, things that could go, uh, you know, one way or the other. So um, I think that's, yeah, actually a, a perfect transition in, into your book, which is 
you know, basically the subject of the book, literally, uh, defending under pressure, managing your emotions at the chessboard. Um, so, you know, it was actually funny. I was just, as you know, uh, a few weeks ago, literally just looking at the chess books uh, in Barnes & Noble one day, uh, you know, actually looking for, uh, uh, you know, some, some, some repertoire uh, books and um, just happened to stumble uh, across your book. Um, and, uh, you know, we actually played uh, a few weeks before that. And, uh, yeah, I remember I got to the club and was talking to uh, you and our actually previous podcast guest, Rafi Ray, the president of the Marshall. And I was like, oh, wow, well, guess what I saw today? Your book. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, really, really did like it because, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I've kind of complained a lot about, uh, <laughs> actually, on the podcast and to students is how 90% of books out there are opening books. Um, not saying they're not useful at, at all they, they, they definitely are but um there's very few books or almost maybe no other book you know about this kind of topic you know um you know i really get more like on, on the board so um and and of course you do give you know some exercises a lot of exercises you know from your own games actually but um you know th there's obviously a lot of psychology uh into it so uh can you tell us uh Obviously, without giving too much information, so people buy the book. Uh, of course, the link will be in, in the show notes as, as well. But um, can you tell us a little bit more about the book and how you uh, got the idea for it? Well, it goes back to some of the things I've said to you already, Evan, about why I've been attracted to classical time controls, positional player, et cetera, you know, why I've never played online. And as I said a few minutes ago, most of the techniques, whether they're this emotional self-management techniques or even the more chess-related techniques in here, would not apply very well the faster the time controls are. So for blitz, uh, this is not going to be very useful because these are thinking techniques that require a minimum amount of time. I would say if you're playing game 60, so the whole game is 60 minutes or slower, this is a wonderful resource training manual because to your point most of the books are either on the openings or offensive tactics all the tactical puzzle books are move and win and all the, almost all the stuff online are move and win tactics i bet if people if, if, if lee chess did some research on which puzzles people are choosing to solve the most 99 percent of the puzzles they're choosing are offensive in nature where i get to experience the adrenaline of winning sacrificing and checkmating and winning a piece uh there is a section on lead chess where you could choose how do you find the right move to maintain a roughly equal position that's in the spirit of my book those positions and i'll bet if they showed us the data that very very few people will be solving many of those puzzles on lead chess it's a mindset particularly in america where it's all about winning and being proactive and being in control and dominating uh as opposed to, you know, how do you engage in preventive thinking? How do you defend when you're under pressure? It's not comfortable. It's not a place people want to be. Uh, and it's no fun training it either. Uh, and so there's an, a real need if people really want to reach their full potential in chess to get really strong at prophylactic thinking, preventative thinking. Uh, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, what percentage of our losses are due to some gap in our opening knowledge? Very few games fit that description. 
How many are because we made a stupid mistake that's way below our skill level? <laughs> way up there on the list, right? We all do it. I would say 90% yeah, of the games we lose, we did something that we call stupid. Like what you said when you were being coached by Yadassin. Oh, I don't <laughs> want to go. It was just a simple, stupid blunder. There's, there's no learning from that when there really is. <laughs> that's really what my book is all about. Kind of why are you making those mistakes when you're under pressure and have to be defensive? And there's no winning a tactic to, you know, for you to be able to play. Do you have the patience? Do you have the fortitude? Do you have the level-headedness to really kind of work through the noise and quiet your mind and really focus on what you need to do? So by the time someone has finished this book, they've absorbed so many intuitive mindset techniques uh, and perspectives. So that's what helps you in those tough situations more than anything. And that's why I was motivated to write the book. You know, the old saying, if you can't find the book you really want to read, maybe you should write it yourself. And that's what I did. Because this has been my biggest I like that one. over the years. <laughs> How do I self-manage? Because if I look at my games, 90% of my losses, I did, you know, in tennis, they call it an unforced error. You do something stupid mm. that had nothing to do with the opponent uh, at that moment mm. when you made the dumb move, right? So the more we get a handle on those things, the more we're going to reach our true potential, you know, in chess and stop making excuses about why we lost. Yeah, I think that is, you know, a, a very good, uh, you know, point as, as well. You know, often students get very defensive and trying to analyze one of their games, you know, and they'll immediately start, you know, to tell me like, oh, well, you know, because of this. I'm like, I'm not judging you. I'm judging the game. <laughs> You know, um, you know, and 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 yeah, it's, it's important to uh, you know, of of course, learn from you know your your losses, and you know, more importantly, figure out you know why, uh, you know, as well, because the truth is, right, chances are you're probably never going to get the exact same game, you know, against another opponent. Maybe the opening, yeah, you know, obviously, but. You know, you, you're not going to get like the exact same game, but you, yeah, you will get similar positions, uh, you know, and similar uh, potentials, uh, you know, for, for mistakes or, you know, blunders. And, you know, you want to know how you could you know, prevent that in the future uh, in, you know, somewhat similar uh, positions. So, um, another thing that, I thought was very interesting that you said a couple of weeks ago when we had a conversation was, you know, how you've been relatively very, very, very consistent uh, against lower rated players. Um, you know, despite, by the way, a lot of kids these days right, and even adult players, uh, you know, being very underrated, uh, things are definitely catching up uh, a little bit. I was just talking to my good friend, Nick Panico yesterday, uh, you know, about, yeah, how, you know, since the pandemic, things did somewhat equalize. But, yeah, I mean, there are definitely lots of players who are, you know, I would say relatively severely still, you know, underrated. So um, how, how have you basically maintained consistency against, uh, you know, lower-rated players? Yeah, I mean, at that point, when I was talking with you, as you know, on the USCF website, it'll show your 12-month uh, well, I'll show your total results since 1991, obviously, on that ratings history page, but it'll also show the last 12 months. 
and it will break it down your opponents within a hundred point category. So you get to see for each grade level what your score has been, wins, losses, and draws over the last 12 months. So when I made that comment to you at that point in time, I had something like 22 wins and two losses against players uh, between 1,700 and 1,900. Uh, so that's pretty good consistency. That's like a roughly 90% you know, score range. I've lost a couple games since then, so it's come down slightly. But that's quite a streak of consistency. And I think it's mostly psychological, I'll be honest with you. And the reason my rating isn't higher than where I think it should be is because my score against in the last 12 months against players over 2,000 is quite a bit lower. And that's those cases mm -hmm. where I'm making those, you know, unforced errors, so to speak. Uh, I mean, I may eventually lose to much better players. We all will. But, you know, the percentage would be a lot better uh, if I wasn't making, you know, the dumb moves that I need to get a handle on. But I think psychologically when I'm playing players in that 17 to 1900 range, and I know I've been a lifetime 21, even though my current rating is not that high, psychologically, I believe. So it's like, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, positive thinking, I guess you could say, that on many occasions I could play at that more advanced level. And so uh, even when I occasionally am struggling a little bit or it's equal uh, against those lower rated players, I feel I know I'm going to come back. So it's mostly psychological and emotional uh, more than anything else, where you don't quite feel that confident that you're going to come back in an e even or worse position against, let's say, an expert or a master, obviously. So to me, that's a big part of it. it it's psychology. Yeah, I mean, that is, uh, you know, an, an important point. And, uh, yeah, I mean, consistency, of course, is, 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 is huge. Um, you know, I was actually just looking at my history, uh, you know, a little bit. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, you used to, you know, 1600, then you do the, you know, strong master. Um, you know, so, look, any, anyone can beat anyone on a, you know, given day. Um, you know, it's, it's really just a matter of, uh, you know, consistency. So um, really, I want to thank you for, you know, taking some time talking about, uh, you know, how you got started, uh, your inspiration from, you know, Fisher and Spassky, uh discipline, uh, your lack of online game, the danger of addiction in chess, team building, emotional self-management, uh, prophylactic thinking, uh, you know, consistency uh, in chess. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, while you're on the podcast? No, I mean, as a, you know, a psychologist with a PhD, uh, I've thought a lot about how adults learn, how they maintain peak performance uh, and knowledge and training methods, whether it's for business executives or even for chess players. And I think I've discovered after a lot of trial and error and seeing what others have done, including, you know, esteemed trainers like Mark Dvoretsky and others over the years, I think I've determined what I believe is this, if you can only choose one training method, uh, what is the best method to, to show significant improvement? Not many people would do a lot of it because it takes a time commitment and discipline. Even I don't do as much of it as I should if I want to be as good as I think I should be. But in a nutshell, what the methodology is, is you take your own games from at least that are a year or older, so you don't remember exactly what happened, right? But you take your own scorebooks and you go through them in a guess the move format, like you're trying to guess the world champion's moves. And what I do is I have Stockfish 15 running in the background 
and I show it partially on a screen so I can only see the evaluation, but I can't see the move it's suggesting. And I take my games and I try to guess the move. So I have my past self, what move did I make you know, seven years ago? I have my self today, what move would I make in this position today? And I have God, i.e. Stockfish 15, about to tell me. And then I'll make, I'll choose my move today, uh, regardless of what I did seven years ago. And then I'll look at the evaluations, on, I'll enter it in so Stockfish will evaluate it, but I don't know what it's recommending yet. And if it says all of a sudden you're plus four or now you're minus seven, so now it's giving me a hint like a coach. Okay, you just made a, a significant mistake, but before I tell you what the mistake is or what you should have played, figure it out for yourself. So I'll stop the action, say, okay, stop this, just told me the move I'm going to make right now is now all of a sudden I was, I was plus 0.6 and now I'm minus 0.8. What did I do wrong? I got to think it through for myself. And then I'll see what Stockfish is saying is a better move. And now I got to answer the question, why is that better than what I just chose? So that methodology of guess the move based on your own games, what better games, same patterns repeat themselves. And, and now you have God sitting next to you as the coach, giving you evaluative feedback, but not giving you the moves yet. And only then do you get to see the move. That methodology, I guarantee, will get people closer to their potential faster than any other method. Significant time commitment though to do it. Thanks. It's amazing how good it really is. I, do, I, I don't have enough time with working and family and limited time for chess, but if, if, if I could do nothing but chess and I really wanted to reach master, that's what I would do. 90% of my training time right there. So give that some yeah, well, it's that. Yeah, well, I definitely appreciate it. And yeah, peak performance, something that has definitely been talked about, uh, you know, several times uh, on the podcast, probably most yeah. notably by uh, someone, I'm sure you know, James Altucher, uh, you know, at least by name. And, uh, you know, he's he talked about this, uh, you know, quite quite, quite a bit, uh, you know, in, in, in chess, podcasting, finance, uh, you know, you, you, you name it. So. Um, lastly, if anyone wants to reach you, learn more about your, your coaching, the book, uh, you know, anything else, uh, is there a way people could get a hold of you? The easiest way is uh, on LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest just to find someone. We don't even have to remember an email address. So I would just say LinkedIn. That is true. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate learning, you know, a lot more about yourself, about your career, about uh, lots of insights about chess and coaching and performance and uh, so on. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing you again at a tournament too. Yeah, thank you, Evan. I really appreciate the opportunity today. And these are fascinating topics. I'm sure we'll have some in-person informal conversations at the Marshall or somewhere in the coming months. So I look forward to it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Right. Take care. Take care.